0: I was thinking while um, John and I were up there, <laughs> we were playing, I'm like, well, we don't sound like the Rolling Stones, but we are almost as old as they are. <laughs> Not nearly as rich as they are. <laughs> I hear that. <laughs> There's money in sin. <laughs> No, rock music is not a sin, don't go there. Um, Before I get into this, and I think we actually are going to go to Revelation today, but I did want to ask, did anybody uh, employ the sword of the Spirit like we talked about last week, this week? Yeah? Good results? Yeah? Anybody want to share a story? Don't have to, but if you do... Okay. We'll talk to those folks that raise their hand if you want to know more. Um. All right. <clears throat> oh, you know what? I don't have the little. I wonder where that went too. You think? Ah, there it is. Don't want to burn myself. All right. Okay, well, it's been a while since we've been in Revelation. That's okay. and I, uh, All right, we are going to get there. But God impressed this scripture upon me, and I just want to read this because I think it, it kind of has something to do with this. This is from 2 Timothy. And um, let's read the whole thing. It's really five verses uh, ch- from uh, chapter 4. Paul's writing to Timothy, and he says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Maybe these would help. And by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. And I, don't, I think that was impressed upon me because... I don't want to get, you know, we, we have we've strayed from this topic that we've been, you know, this series we've been doing for the past three weeks, and that's wonderful, and I, I you have my word that I will continue to do that as the Spirit prompts. Uh, however, we are back in this, and the thing about th- this is, this is people might tend to put more emphasis on. You know that sort of impromptu word you know that comes God says talk about this, and we talk about this, but I think this whole idea about sound teaching is important, and the fact that we do need you know to not only have those impromptu words but to have a word that comes from the scriptures that has been prayed over and thought about and and so on and so forth so just to make that little distinction, and, and you know, like I said, I'll I'm pledging I've given the Lord my word that as stuff comes up, I'll deal with it. Right? If it's just one of those that sort of flies in there on a Saturday morning, like last week and, and this week, it was kind of like this was the, what was supposed to happen. So here we are. So back um, now, I feel like I can start back um, way back when. <laughs> We were in Revelation weeks ago, and we, we sort of started with this big idea in that ch- the last part of chapter 6, which was this, you know, the martyr's cry of how long, you know, how long is this going to go on, was answered with the two words um, in the English language that we think are almost as bad as no, and those are not yet, right? God says, wait. Not yet. We hate that, right? We hate that as Christians. We want it to happen now. We almost think that if a prayer is not answered yes, then it's not an answered prayer. Well, that's just not true. God can answer prayers yes, no, and not yet. Not yet. So that's part That's part of it. And the insights we took out of this particular passage were uh, this first one. It's unfortunate, but Christianity and suffering go to together like dessert and calories. <laughs> you know, I've always I've heard people pray, well, you know, pray the calories out of this, or we're on vacation, the calories don't count. Um, what you can do, whatever that works for you, that's fine, but. If when it comes to Christianity and suffering, that's just part of the game, right? That's just part of it. So we have to uh, acknowledge that. second thing is, is almost as bad, um, God's timing is not our timing. Get over it. Get used to it. Deal with it. <laughs> Whatever you want to say there, but just understand that you know, it goes back to that waiting thing. Right, We have to wait on when God is ready to do something. And then finally, um, God's the one that gets the last word, not us. (coughs) It's his job to judge, not ours. And so we have to let him do that. And it's best for us and for all parties involved if we will take ourselves out of that game. Leave the judging to the judge and Um, stop doing it. There are so many, you know, so many factors that influence things uh, in, in our lives, in other people's lives. We have no way of knowing what they all are. And so we really have to sort of give grace in those circumstances because we just don't know. We just don't know what's going on in someone else's life that's made them act the way they're acting on a particular day. Just like sometimes we act poorly for a variety of reasons, right? And hopefully people give us grace too. All right. So now let's sort of uh, let's talk a little bit about um, chapter seven. So have you ever been uh, in the mountains hiking? And so you're hiking along, and you think you're you know, you've just about gotten to the crest, and and oh, it feels so good. And you get to the top, and then you notice that there's a higher crest that's about a half mile away. Whoa. All right. That was exciting. (laughs) That there's this this other ridge that's a half a mile away, and it's steeper than the one you just climbed. It's like, oh, man. That's kind of how it feels to get to this point in Revelation you know, we've, um, we've gotten to where we've looked at the six, six of these seven seals, um, and Jesus is, has opened those, and we're getting all excited about the seventh seal, and it's bringing us to some sort of a really decisive climax, as the scroll can finally be read, but instead, John, what does John do? John keeps us in suspense, and he does this periodically throughout Revelation. Um, We've got to wait. It's sort of like the souls that we talked about who are under the altar. Wait. Wait a little while longer. We need to see something else happen. And what happens in in Revelation is this thing called an interlude. And there are really two of these. One is here in the seventh chapter, and the other follows... um, I think it's chapter 14. But there's another uh, there's another interlude where things kind of get to this point, you know, like I said, just you're, you've crested the hill, and it's like, oh, dang it, there's <laughs> another hill that we have to go over. And so, but what interludes do oftentimes in this book is they'll shed light on something in particular, maybe the situation of, of, of God's people. Um, it might offer some insight into, um, Some future hope or something. And so this particular interlude uh, consists of two things. There's two visions. One is this protective ceiling of the 144,000. Okay. Then we also have a celebration of the great multitude. Now, it's very likely that these two separate visions actually depict the same group of people. Okay. So we don't want to start to think, well, it's two different groups. we're seeing the same group of people from two different perspectives. Uh, it's probably a better way to look at it. So first we see these people, um, the people of God on earth, and they're sort of arrayed in a battle formation, you know, this 12, the 12 tribes of 12,000. Um, and so, and they're protected now, they've been sealed, so they're protected from the divine judgments that are going to, to come. And secondly, we see In sort of the second part of this, we see all of God's people in heaven celebrating a victory. You know, the God's faithfulness has come, and so their endurance has now paid off, and everything is victorious. You'll recall (coughs) that the sixth chapter of Revelation concluded with this question, who can withstand the wrath of God and the Lamb? And among those who are on earth, the answer is clearly no one. But this first part of Revelation offers a slightly different and more hopeful answer. And that is that God's servants will be able to endure or to stand because of this protective seal that God has put on them. And so this... That we're talking about sort of pictures the people of God being sealed prior to the outpouring of God's wrath. Now, the thing is, people are protected from God's wrath, but they are not protected from the wrath of the beast and his followers. And that's an important distinction. But as believers, we will never experience the wrath of God. However, that as we've said many times, that doesn't mean there's no suffering, that there's no, there are no issues, there are no problems. Uh, there's still going to be persecution, and possibly even death, at the hands of evil forces. So let's actually look at this text, and then we'll dive into it a little bit. All right, so this is Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. And it says, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the forehead of the servants of our God. Then as I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel, from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed, from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000, from the tribe of Gad, 12,000, from the tribe of Asher, 12,000, from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. So going back to um, to verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or the sea or on any tree. Now, in apocalyptic literature, which is what Revelation is, oftentimes we find that angels are are put in charge or given charge over nature. Um, And here we have these four angels who are standing on the four corners of the earth, which you know, we know is really just a phrase that represents the entire world, right? That's kind of how we think of it. It encompasses everything. And uh, these four winds obviously are very destructive forces. And right now, or at this moment in the text, they're being held in check by these angels under God's sovereign command. And it's one of the, the sort of tantalizing features of Revelation is that we're never really told when these winds are, are released to, to go and, and we don't really even know what happens when they do. We just know that at this point they're there and they're being held back. And I think this passage gives us an opportunity, uh, more than anything, to reflect a little bit on God's control over creation as a whole. And I ran across this quote that I would like to read to you that I thought summed this up. God did not create our universe like a giant clock which he wound up at the beginning of time. Ours is not a mechanistic world, nor is it an autonomous biological entity growing according to some genetic code of the cosmos. Ours is a world which is actively sustained by God on a full-time basis. Every fact in the universe from beginning to end is exhaustively interpreted by God in terms of his being, plan, and power. So what is that saying? It's saying that God is control is in control of everything. Everything. Let that seep in a little bit. Because so often we, we we tend to put God in control, we let, let's put it this way, we let God be in control of certain things. And we won't let him be in control of other things. And in fact, the only person we're really fooling is ourselves. Because it's clear that God is in control of everything. And so, you might as well quit fighting <laughs> and go ahead and let him have control of everything. Um, so that there's not this battle going on internally within yourself. Next verse is a kind of a combination of two and three. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. So in in verse 1, no wind's allowed to blow against anything in nature. And the four angels are now told that they can't harm anything, including the servants of God, until they've been sealed or protected. Now, in in the biblical world, a seal really represented a grant of authority or power. Okay, So I think we've talked about the fact that letters were sealed, usually with wax, and then something was pressed into the wax, which was the, the... symbol or uh, coat of arms or whatever you want to call it that was of that individual who was sending the letter. So, you know, kings and everyone had their own seal. And so that would designate, and, and so whatever was sealed with that carried the same authority as the person who used that seal in the first place. <coughs> now, this the idea of sealing the people on the forehead um, well, in antiquity, that's where slaves were marked. They were there were seal. there was some mark put on their forehead. Uh, and it indicated ownership or protection um, for the slave, but in this case it's the ownership and protection of the servants of God. And that's what this seal is saying. And the primary Old Testament background for this is in the book of Ezekiel in chapter nine. And that shows God commissioning executioners to go and destroy everyone in the city of Jerusalem. But he, first he commands another angel to go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. So of those who are faithful, who are seeing the you know all of these terrible things that are happening in <laughs> Jerusalem that God is going to do away with, there were some that saw the wrong that was being done, and it broke their heart. And so they're grieving for this. And those are the people that God is going to go in and make sure that no harm happens to them. And so they're marked for protection in order that the apostates, the one who've fallen away from the faith in Jerusalem, can be destroyed. And so um, the mark on the forehead is really a symbol of, of man being restored in fellowship to God. Now, the interesting thing that uh, I found in, in, in looking into this is that the protective mark that's mentioned in Ezekiel 9 is literally, it's either tav or taw but whichever way you pronounce it, it's the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Okay. Now, I'm, I've got to be full disclosure, I found this in numerous commentaries. Um, But I could never find out why they were so certain of this, okay? Um, I looked at Hebrew lexicons. I I did as much research as I had material for. And I never could actually come to a source for this other than the fact that the commentaries I use are by fairly well-noted scholars, and they all seem to kind of agree on this. So I just offer that, um, you know, like I said, without, I can't tell you where it says this were curious. Um, What I did find really interesting though, is that this particular, as I'm sure all of them have, but this Hebrew letter has changed over time. You know, we talk about the fact that language changes over time. Well, in some cases, the alphabet has changed. In its most ancient form, this is what that letter looked like. And then, about the time that Ezekiel was written, it looked like this. And now, it looks like this. So it's changed a lot. <clears throat> Why that is, you know, I don't know. But, as I know some of you noticed, it, at least in Ezekiel's time, the first two look a lot like a cross. Well, that was not lost on the early church. They knew that. And so the early church really saw this as sort of a quasi-prophetic reference to the sign of the cross used by Christians, that these believers were being marked with a cross. Now, may have been the Hebrew letter Ta, but nonetheless, it certainly looked like a cross. And so you have this idea of the seal of God standing in stark contrast to the mark of the beast. that's talked about later on in Revelation. Uh, One is clearly sealed for condemnation and the other for salvation. Um, Now the thing is, and we talked about this a minute ago, this seal doesn't exempt anybody from physical persecution. It doesn't exempt us from suffering. But, it does protect believers from spiritual defeat and it enables them to remain loyal to Jesus in the midst of all that's happening. All right, looking at verse 4. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Now, as I said, um, Well, this number occurs here and then again in chapter 14, which really suggests that it's representing the same group in both places, okay? Um, And like I said, 14 also serves as an interlude as well. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, the number itself results from this idea of multiplying uh, the square of 12 times 1,000 which in one sense emphasizes the completeness and totality um, of God and and of his followers. (laughs) And there are some people that sort of see this number as some reference to a literal Jewish remnant. Um, But it's really more likely that it represents all believers uh, or the whole company of the redeemed, if you will. Um, And the reason that we say that is that these numbers, uh, in numbers in Revelation, generally speaking, are figurative. All right, they're representing representative of something, not an actual, you know, one hundred forty-four thousand. Um, plus, we have the idea that the you know the expression "servants of God," which is used here, uh, signifies all believers everywhere that it's used in Revelation. So those facts kind of combine. To, uh, to help us see that. <clears throat> and so another interesting thing that happens here is that as we saw in, in, in verse 5, when, remember when we talked about how Jesus heard the lion and saw the lamb? Well, right now he hears the number, 144,000, that's broken down into the 12 tribes. But as we're going to see next week, um, when he looks, what he sees is this great uncountable crowd that clearly is greater than 144,000. And so that, once again, strongly suggests it's the same group of people, right? Um, It's just a symbolic representation, uh, you know, the 12 times 12,000 sort of representing the people of God but actually consisting of of much larger group than, uh, than just that, and the fact that no one could even count them. They haven't escaped suffering, they've come through it, and are now safely on the other side. Um, so it, it's really just a case of John using a lot of, of pretty rich symbolism uh, from Israel's identity to really mark out those who through Jesus the Messiah belong to God and who are part of his renewed and rescued people. So the big idea in this sort of to take away is that you know before God goes to the point of pouring out his wrath on the world he is going to give his people some measure of spiritual protection right they're going to be protected Um, Let's see. I uh, don't go there. Okay. So let's talk about this. So, sort of as we look at what does this text mean for us today, right? How do we, you know, what what are we what are we able to take away from this, other than a little more knowledge of what the Book of Revelation means, right? And and it's a little bit better interpretation of it. Well, the first point is this: that you know, that on Earth we are engaged in a spiritual battle. Anybody refute that? No? We're about two months shy of um, December 7th, which as you know is the anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Now when that happened, it was a Sunday, and There were two waves of Japanese that attacked Pearl Harbor. They came in uh, about two hours apart. I think it was roughly 2,400 servicemen and civilians were killed and about 1,200 servicemen and civilians were wounded in that attack. There were eight battleships that were sunk or damaged. There were numerous planes that were lost, and it was that day that the U.S. was drawn into World War II. What's significant about that? What's significant about that is that the U.S. was already in a war. They just didn't know it until Pearl Harbor hit. And I think we can draw an analogy with where we are as Christians today. Whether you want to admit it or not, whether you're comfortable talking about a devil and an enemy and, and, and all that, that kind of is, is beside the point. The fact is, we're in a war. We just, mean you know, hopefully you do know it, but if you don't, I'm here to tell you. You're in a war. It's not going to get easier. Right? There's a battle to fight. That's one reason why we took last week, this idea of of using the sword of the spirit is so important because it's one of the weapons we have that we can use to fight in this battle. You know, we have all of these, you know, we've got the defensive weapons too, but uh, chances are that until we really understand that we're in a war, you're not going to engage an offensive weapon. Well, it's time to engage. You know, there there may be an occasional ceasefire, right? Um, There will be, you know, some down times, but the fact is that there's always going to be this battle. And the times that we get sucked in are when, you know, all of a sudden things start kind of rolling along and everything's good, right? And and you think, ah, this is great, and it just lulls you into this false sense of security, and then wham, something comes along, and we're like, all of a sudden, we're surprised. Oh my gosh. Why are we surprised? (laughs) It's probably a better way to look at it, because um, while things may be going okay, the fact that we're in a war zone still hasn't changed, right? Like I said, there's maybe a ceasefire that allows you some breathing room, but it's still we're still in a you're still in a fight. And so we have to understand that the enemy is on a mission to destroy us, to destroy our lives, and we cannot, we should not be caught unaware or by surprise. Secondly, is that you know, God's people have been sealed and protected against his judgments. Now, God promises to bring judgment on, on our wicked world. And that includes allowing some of these forces of evil to go ahead and carry out their mission. But, you know, as I've shown you, there's a clear distinction between God's wrath in the wrath of Satan. There's a difference between human persecution and divine judgment. And I thought was interesting, when you look at the Greek word that's used for witness, the actual word is martyros. Care to guess what other word comes from martyros? Martyr. Martyr, exactly. Which is someone who gives the ultimate witness. And so when we face persecution, we we should trust that God's at work preserving our souls while he glorifies himself and that our suffering is always so that we can be a witness and so that we can actually witness it ourselves. And then third... God's Holy Spirit, who lives within every genuine believer, guards and protects them or us from spiritual harm. And it tells us in Ephesians that we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And uh, like we've said, this wax seal in the ancient world functioned a lot like a notary public stamp. You know, it's just it's made official by that. It was proof that a legal transaction had taken place just like a contract. (laughs) And so God has promised to protect us as his people. And as a witness to this promise, he sealed us with his Holy Spirit. And he's assured us that we belong to him and we're never going to suffer the wrath that will befall on others. And so when we go through these periods of you know, really intense spiritual struggle, we can know that God is there, that we truly belong to him, and that we are protected until the day that Jesus returns. Amen. I'm going to go ahead and ask the worship team to come back up. You flip the lights off too, please. Before they begin, I just want to take some time. And be still. Scripture tells us that that's when we really know God, is when we're quiet. So we're just going to wait on him, see what he might want to do today. And so Holy Spirit, we invite you to come in to this specific time and place and situation. I pray that you would guide me and all of those here into exactly what it is you would have us do now. The that God seems to be giving me <clears throat> is spiritual eyes. And the way I interpret that is that there are one or more of you here who desire to see with spiritual eyes. In other words, to be able to open the scriptures and really have just jumps out at you, where it's like a revelation, where you can begin to really see more into the spirit world, perhaps. Things that we don't see with our physical eyes, but that we we can see once our spiritual eyes are opened. So if this... If this resonates with you at all, this idea of of having your spiritual eyes opened, uh, I think what I want to do is I want to just have you, if you would like prayer for that, let's do it this way. If you would like prayer for that, we're going to have the worship team is going to start uh, playing, and we're going to continue on in worship for a little. But if that, if this word is speaking about you, or if this is something that you desire, I'm just gonna ask you to raise your hand. And then i like, okay, so we have George in the back, Andrew over here, keep your hands up. So look, those of you that do not have your hands raised, I want you to look around at who does. And I want you to go, pray for one or more of these individuals, okay? So just maybe wherever God leads you, you look up and some, you see someone with their hand up, like, just go pray with them, okay? And you're just going to pray simply that, you know, God let them see with spiritual eyes. It doesn't have to be long, elegant, flowery. It just has to be straightforward. God knows exactly what we're doing here. Otherwise, he wouldn't have raised this issue. And so... Uh, if you would, let's let's continue on in worship, and uh, release everybody else to just to go and, and to pray for someone.